0: What you are about to hear is not not
1: not, not.
0: a podcast. <laughs> this is a global conversation recorded live in real time with real people,
2: journalists, business leaders, academics,
0: politicians, I think
3: the terms a deep state,
0: oh yeah.
3: <laughs> investors, experts, diplomats, citizens,
0: coming together from around the world to share their views and ask our guests the questions. If you would like to join this conversation or hear our incredible library of past conversations, please visit our website, PM101.club, and join the fastest-growing conscious community on the free internet. Thanks for being here. Enjoy enjoy the show. Show, 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 show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Politics and Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning, and if you listen to our first few episodes, then you know that over the last few months, my friend Justin Higgins and I and our friends have convened hundreds of conversations, sometimes more than once per day with up to 30,000 live listeners and participants, where we hear directly from people who are in the news, in their own voices, in their own words, in long form, and where anyone who wants to can join to ask them a question, share their thoughts, or just listen. We're just now starting to release recorded portions of these conversations for the first time, and we are grateful to you for joining us. Today, we're releasing a recorded portion of a conversation, interview, and audience Q&A we hosted with U.S. Congressman Jim Himes and Ellen Nakashima, who's a national security reporter at The Washington Post. Ellen has won two Pulitzer Prizes, including one for her work exposing the truth of what happened in the 2016 election, and Congressman Himes is a member of the House who's respected on both sides of the aisle and who knows a lot about what's going on in the world today. We talked about some institutions that really cut right to the heart of America today, where we are and where we're going. Congress, the judiciary, the media, how should they all relate in a free society? How is the U.S. different from authoritarian dictatorships around the world where all of that is much more fuzzy and much less accountable. Another issue we talked about was cybersecurity. The wall between the cyber world and the real world really starts to break down when you have cyber attacks on food, electricity, transportation, health, or election infrastructure. This wall especially starts to break down where you have conflict between states and where cyber attacks can mean people starve or freeze or face violence in the real world. We talked about how the international community is responding to this. What's the U.S. role in that? We also talked about what the U.S. is actively doing here at home, as well as around the world, to respond and defend ourselves and where all of this is likely to go in the future. We had about 9,000 listeners in our live audience from all over the world, including some pretty serious cybersecurity experts who asked great questions such as Katie Massoris, a pioneer and global leader in the area of cyber vulnerability, and Dimitri, the co-founder and former CTO of CrowdStrike. We hope you enjoy the conversation, and if you want to hear more like it, find out where to join us live, ask any of our upcoming guests a question, or share feedback with us, good or bad, please visit our website, pm101.club or pm101.live. They both work, and we'll get you to the same place where you can find all of that and more. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape.
4: Ellen, uh, we want to start with you. Can you give us a little bit of your background and why you were drawn to journalism?
5: I never had an idea of being a journalist until I actually graduated from college and walked into the college paper uh, on a whim in the summer before I was going to go to grad school. And I actually, uh, I got assigned a story Which was to interview the first Asian American female dean of a college. I think at UC Berkeley. I did the story, and the next day it appeared on the front page. And I said, "Hey, this is fun." And before I knew it, I had withdrawn from grad school and was working at the college paper. So that sort of whetted my appetite for the field. Um, As I got into it, I thought I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. That was my dream, and I started this was back in the 90s, in a more traditional way by working at a smaller paper and then up to a mid-sized paper. In fact, it was the Hartford Current a congressman in, in Connecticut. And that was a really good mid-sized paper at the time. And uh, from there, got a job offer to work at the Washington Post to cover Metro News. Unfortunately, that's sort of working your way up uh, to, to learn the ropes from a small to medium-sized paper covering cops, courts, schools, you know, then the urban issues, city issues. It doesn't exist for a lot of journalists these days with the demise of so many good uh, community and smaller and mid-sized papers. But ever however I was fortunate in that regard and got to the Washington Post uh, where I was able actually to become a foreign correspondent in 2002, and got stationed in Southeast Asia with my husband, who is a now an uh, editor on Foreign Desk. And we were there for four years, covering everything from the Bali bombings to, uh, you know, SARS, bird flu, and the Indian Ocean tsunami, uh, uh, just a lot of issues going on in the region at the time. And then I, when we came back in 2006, I got put on the financial desk covering technology, privacy, and security. And that's how I sort of fell into, I guess, the combination of the foreign experience and then covering technology and pri- privacy issues in the middle of the Trump administration moved me uh, gradually toward national security. This was, you know, an era in which we were in full-on war on terror and and technology was being utilized in many ways to to try to prevent another big attack. And there were many uh, significant issues that were arising from that. And cybersecurity, of course, became one of them. And so while I never set out to become a national security reporter, I sort of naturally gravitated toward that by dint of the sort of career path uh, I ended up taking. And so, you know, here I am today covering issues of cyber and intelligence and surveillance and national security. And uh, it's it's a really sort of rich, rewarding, and always <laughs> busy field. It's
4: com- Not only important, but probably uh, going to be increasingly important as our society becomes more technologically dependent. So that's a pretty cool story. Thank you for that, Ellen. Uh, Congressman, I have uh, two questions. I'm going to wrap into one here. Um, can you kind of go through how you transitioned from the private sector storied career there into the public sector? Like why that was appealing to you. And then the second question that we love to ask all of our members of Congress that come on to this show uh, so that if you're from the U.S. or if you're from somewhere else, you can get a feel for uh, the man or woman that we are talking to. Can you describe Mm -hmm. Connecticut's fourth district to us and why, in your estimation, it might be the
6: best district in the United States? (laughs) <laughs> great, uh, absolutely, and thanks, thanks for having me on, and it's great to be on with uh, with Ellen, who uh, uh, who I have a ton of respect for. Um, so, uh, to answer your questions, uh, you know, so why why uh, leave the private sector? You know, I, I from when I was really young, I had a real appreciation for the um, power of government to make things better. Maybe you know, one of my very first memories was uh, July of 1969. I'll, I'll let you do the math as to, as to my age, but July. of 1969, I remember on a tiny little seven by nine inch television screen watching a man set foot on the moon. And I, oh my God, I mean, for a, for a toddler, just toddler plus, that was just an amazing moment, right? And, and, um, you know, I wasn't old enough to have appreciated the civil rights movement at the time, but I grew to appreciate that. And, you know, the the more I, the more I sort of thought about as I was growing older, the power of government when it does things right, and that's a really important distinction, because obviously it does things wrong, and that will come up in my story momentarily, um, you know, I just thought, wow, that's a, you know, that 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 the government, when it does things right, can really transform lives and, and not just, you know, civil rights. I Sometimes when I go to schools, I hold up my iPhone and I say, you guys know what this is? And I say, you know, uh, uh, you might wonder what the government does. It put the satellites into space that allow you to do location services. It actually was it was a government research program that led to the Internet. Uh, you know, and I go on and on about innovation and R&D and all that good stuff. Um, what I didn't want to do was go straight out of school into government. I, I I I always thought it was a good idea if I was going to be opining on, uh, you know, uh, regulation for the business sector, I'd actually know a little something about the business sector, say. Um, and so I did spend um, I did spend about a dozen years uh, in business and a number of years in the nonprofit sector doing affordable housing. Business in particular, great place to get trained. Really, really enjoyed it. Did not move my soul. I didn't wake up in the morning and think to myself, "Wow, I can't believe they pay me to do this." Uh, And um, and so, you know, uh, I I hit this moment in 07 where I where I just said, "You know, I'm going to lose this race." But um, when I'm 90 years old on my rocking chair, uh, God willing, I'll look back and say, "You know, when the opportunity presented itself, at least I swung for the fences." And one thing led to another. Barack Obama, top of the ticket, that changed the electorate in southwestern Connecticut. and, um, you know, along the way, just to just to sort of fill in uh, the tease I gave you earlier, you know, uh, early 2000s, I watched the government do some things catastrophically wrong, right? The Iraq War, major, major strategic error, arguably the, the strategic era of our generation. Um, the meltdown in 2008, the economic meltdown, which grew partly out of, you know, failed regulation. And I just thought the time is now, I should do it. And I did it. And, you know, the stars lined up and and the, and the rest is history. Um, um, but to answer the second question, um, why is the fourth district the best district? Um, you know, I'm not going to say it's the best district. I'm going to say it's a wonderful district. I actually, every time I travel this country, I'm always kind of amazed by, you know, by by its diversity and its amazingness and blah, blah, blah. What I will tell you, it's fascinating. And here's why. Um, I have, first of all, we're, you know, we're kind of suburban to New York. A lot of people commute into New York. So you've got ready access to the greatest city in the world. Um, and, you know, 10 minutes from home is beaches and, and you know, mountains in which to to hike, et cetera. But um, the reason my district is fascinating um, is I've got some of the wealthiest people in the world in Southwestern Connecticut and communities like Greenwich and new Canaan and Darien. Uh, I also right next to those communities. um, I have communities of immense poverty. Uh, The city of Bridgeport has a lot of poverty. I've got three cities they are all pretty small, Um, but that really a day doesn't go by that. I'm not in Connecticut, that I don't appreciate the challenge that this country still has to, You know, to make the kind of prosperity that is available to many available to more people, because I just see it every single day uh, in my district. And it's a, you know, people say, "Oh, well, aren't aren't the aren't the you know desires of the rich at odds with the desires of the poor?" No, no, not. I mean, sometimes, but 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 not all that often. I think you know, an awful lot of the wealthier people that I represent actually talk about the disparity that I'm talking about in a similar vein, which is we've we've got to do better. So it's just a it's a it's a fascinating place politically.
4: Uh, Thank you very much for kind of shaping the context a little bit of the 750-odd thousand Americans that you represent. Uh, So now getting into the meat and potatoes, Congressman, could you outline from your perspective, you obviously have a ton of knowledge here, what are maybe the gravest threats to United States uh, national security and also some potential opportunities for us?
6: What what an interesting question. And, and the reason I say it's an interesting question, because if you asked me that question five years ago, or even a year ago, I would have given you a perfectly wrong answer. And, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, we are still living through a brutal pandemic um, uh, to which we lost hundreds of thousands of Americans. You know, globally, we're getting on towards four million people lost. And two years ago, I wouldn't have mentioned a pandemic. And yet now we've lost more Americans to COVID-19, I think, than we've lost in any of our wars. And. Five years ago, if you uh, had asked me, I might not have said that our democracy would be stressed and put in peril not by the Russians, not by the Chinese, not by Al-Qaeda, but by a – right-wing populist movement that uh, goaded on by a United States president actually attempted to, you know, an insurrection against the Congress of the United States, I, w- I would have looked at you like you were nuts. So so I approach that question with a fair amount of humility these days, because I would have gotten it exactly wrong. Uh, and that's, of course, one of the challenges of the field. Um, so let me give the conventional answer, uh, because these, just because everything that I just said, I think is true, doesn't mean that it's also not true that we um, face very serious cyber threats. We see this every single day. And, you know, by the grace of God, the worst that has happened so far has, um, has largely been, you know, some gas lines associated with the colonial pipeline uh, attack, but it could really be much, much worse. And of course, wrapped up in cyber uh, is the question of what is Russia doing? Uh, Russia is obviously a very malign and almost chaotic, almost, uh, you know, vandal type actor. Uh, Chinese are much, much more targeted in the way they mess with our networks and you know you've got the rogues out there um, as we as we ultimately saw uh, with the with the colonial uh, the colonial pipeline malware attack so you'd have to put cyber uh, at the at the top of the list and then sort of all the conventional stuff um, you know obviously we still spend a ton of time and energy and money on counterterrorism because we never want to see a 9/11 again uh, you know we we worry about uh, the, the the traditional rogues gallery North North Korea Iran, etc. One last thing I'll mention, because it needs to be addressed in somewhat unconventional fashion, of course, is um, the threat of being overtaken by the Chinese. And I, and I really do mean overtaken. I don't mean that the Chinese are someday going to land, uh, you know, landing craft on New Jersey. But, um, you know, they are now innovating. Uh, they are now near peer, as they say in the business with us on technological issues. And if we don't really monitor that closely, the technological advantage that we've enjoyed since World War II We'll go to the Chinese. And, you know, I, I don't believe that we should think of the, as the Chinese as nothing but enemies. I actually think, you know, that we have an awful lot of shared common interests with the Chinese, but we don't we don't want to be second or third place finishers in the technology uh, field when we're talking about things like artificial intelligence or hypersonic weapons or all of the things that you can sort of make yourself nervous about.
4: So I have so many follow ups on points two and three uh, that we could be here for days on end. But I I wanted to ask you a follow up before going to Ellen for a question. Uh, We had you mentioned the Colonial Pipeline hack with cybersecurity. We've had, in addition to that, in, in short order, the JBS hack, which for people in the audience was uh, rogue actors, as the congressman mentioned with the Colonial Pipeline, hacking a meat production facility in the United States that represented a large portion of our meat production. And then finally, the last thing that happened or was announced in short succession was the solar winds, which if I'm I might be wrong, but I think that it's been attributed by unnamed sources and by our intelligence agencies to the state of Russia. So there are many ways we can approach this. But what are you and your colleagues in the United States Congress doing to mitigate our vulnerabilities to these type of hacks both in the private sector and and our government
6: well, great, great question. I'm going to give you the the Reader's Digest answer because there's there's three clear things that we need to do better. Uh, one of them is something for all of us. The other two is uh, uh, are probably uh, you know an, an area for government focus. But uh, you know Ellen watches this pretty closely too, so I want to hear what she has to say on the issue. But the three things: number one, all of us need to be much much smarter about what they call our cyber hygiene. Almost all of these attacks are, succeed because somebody opens an email and clicks on a link, you know, or or, or, or you know doesn't have two factor authentication or they haven't downloaded a patch that stuff's not hard folks right you know it's really not hard and if we all do that if we all show good hybrid cyber hygiene this will go from being a huge problem to being a much more manageable problem okay that we know that number two this is really important um uh, we need to do much more partnership between the private sector, who which is often the target of these things. I mean, yeah, of course they go after you know uh, CIA networks and all that good stuff too. But but you know we we I, it blew my mind that when Colonial Pipelines was, had shut down their 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 pipeline, um, it still was not clear that they were talking to the three letter agencies who really have expertise in how to address these things: NSA, FBI, DHS, etc. Um, we need to say, guys, not 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 a choice anymore. You know, when you get attacked and your critical infrastructure, you go to the Department of Homeland Security, whoever, and you share. Right. And that's that's sort of not optional anymore. And we're, we're, we're moving in that direction. And, you know, there's things, there's things you got to be careful about. You got to be careful about people's private information. Absolutely. And then the third thing, and I feel really strongly about this, um, we we need to do a better job creating a deterrent for this sort of thing. You know, it, it made me a little crazy. And I expressed myself to senior levels of the Obama administration um, that the twenty 16 election hack led to the you know sending away of some so-called diplomats and the closure of a facility in Maryland you know it was a slap on the wrist and um, i was very pleased to see that the government recovered uh, meaningful portions of the ransom that was paid to colonial pipelines. But I mean, we really need to do that and more, right? We need to start breaking people's computers um, and making it very clear. And I, and I say that it's a, it's a very complicated thing, how you create a deterrent, how you do cyber, cyber operations. So I don't mean to sound flip about it. It's actually very complicated. But the point is, we need to, for the first time, start making it clear to nation states and to nation states that harbor rogue actors, that if you do this, you're going to pay a serious, Price deterrence tends to work in these worlds, and in these worlds, and we haven't, we just haven't established a deterrent uh, up to now.
1: Just to
5: pick up on this idea of paying a serious price and breaking people's computers, uh, to you know, recently President Biden w- was in Geneva talking to President Putin, and he handed Putin a list of the sixteen critical infrastructure sectors that should be off limits to attacks and and hacks and. Uh, and he he they talked about, I guess, having uh, consultations with cyber experts from both sides. Do you, do you think having consultations is enough? And are you serious that you, th- you think that should the United States be threatening to break you know Russian computers or hacking Russian pipelines if they c- carry out another sort of attack against one of our critical infrastructure sectors?
6: Yeah, great, great question, Ellen. And um, um, the answer, of course, is yes. And I probably should have mentioned that before I mentioned deterrence, right? You know, talking talking and establishing norms is really important. And and you saw, but I bet most of America didn't see that just um, recently, uh, the United Nations, I, I love this name, the Group of Government Experts, the GGE or something like that, <laughs> released right. a report in, you know, the usual nearly impenetrable UN speak. Um, but it's important because a bunch of states, including China and Russia and the United States and a bunch of other states got together and said, hey, generally speaking, we shouldn't attack each other's uh, uh, critical infrastructure. Um, and yes, I do think that you know, Biden raising it with Putin, and and I would hope he might, um, because, you know, it looks like the perpetrator of the Colonial Pipelines attack was resident in Russia, uh, would really push, would really push. So by all means, you know, and, and um, I, I, I always sort of joke a little bit and say we need – everybody's familiar with the Geneva Convention. We need an e Convention because if nothing else – why, why one of the many reasons that we actually didn't have a nuclear exchange with the Soviets and now the Russians was that we, we really understood how each of us thought about nuclear doctrine. You know We really understood, and, and, and we actually would have our senior officers meet and share protocols. And in fact, you know open Skies treaty, we could fly planes over their nuclear uh, bases, and they could do the same to us. And the whole theory was that we understood how we each thought about the use of nuclear weapons. And because we understood that, um there was much less chance for misunderstanding. We don't have that in the cyber world right now. They we don't really know what a military attack is versus a crime, blah, blah, blah. And that's why, Ellen, to answer your question in a very long-winded fashion, those conversations where we sort of share how we're thinking about this stuff are really important to avoiding, you know, catastrophe through misunderstanding.
5: Do you think that a threat of actually hacking in or breaking down someone's computer or or having some actual impact or effect on their critical infrastructure is a, is, is a uh, you know, wise? Is it, is, it, uh, is it just? Is it something that would be, you know, pass muster in, in international law? And uh, would it be effective?
6: Well, great question. Um, There's no question that it's just right. So, you know, the laws of war have a series of 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 parameters, if you will, as you know, uh, humanity, proportionality uh, that basically says when somebody attacks you, so long as you abide by these parameters, um, it is just Um, the more the more challenging um, critique. And I know because I've had this fight with any number of senior uh, administration officials is, hey, wait a minute, we're more Wired than the Russians, we're certainly more wired than the Iranians, and we're way, way, way more wired than the North Koreans, right? I mean, pretty soon we're in a world where everything is networked, and if we go and start, let's let's just—I I hate to be snarky about it—but just just for shorthand, let's just say if we go in and start hacking back and breaking computers or melting servers, they're going to do the same to us, and we're much more vulnerable. You know, in the in the parlance of the professionals, our attack surface is much larger, and they're right about that. But you know, when when a when when they. They shut down our fuel pipelines I sort of said oh really okay so you mean if they come after us they might oh say shut down a fuel pipeline you know and my point obviously was that you know let's get it out of the way let's make it very clear that this stuff will be expensive and it doesn't need to be breaking stuff look we we demonstrated as, as you know as, as has become current knowledge that we can take people's money uh, we took the ransom back or a good chunk of the ransom back from uh, from uh, the uh, outfit that ran uh, the Colonial pipelines act let's do that let's and, and again I say this a little Little tongue in cheek, just to be understandable, because you know this stuff is really complicated. But you know what? If a bunch of Putin's oligarch friends woke up and had a lot less Bitcoin than they had when they went to sleep, you know, they might the, the message might get through.
5: <laughs> in your estimation, is that uh, is that action that recovering of the Bitcoin uh, repeatable, scalable? Is it something that the FBI is, is likely to be able to do with other victims of ransomware attacks?
6: Um. So you're asking a question that sort of gets at the tactics used and and methods, right? So I got I got to, I got to not really answer that question except by saying that. Um, uh, it worked. Uh, and it worked, I think, partly as a as a as a function of some technological acumen um, that uh, that we have, uh, as well as like these like is always true in these situations, a couple of good breaks. So um, let's leave it there. But I'll right. just say it's, it's not bad for the world to know um, that, you know, if you think that Bitcoin is a secure way to stow your ill gotten gains, um, just remember what happened two weeks ago.
5: What about taking action to regulate cryptocurrency or ensure that offshore exchanges that deal in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency enforce, you know, anti-money laundering rules that might take some of the anonymity out of these transactions? Do you have any thoughts on that? Is there something that the U.S. and maybe allies can do in coordination
6: well, yes, and coordination is going to be key, right? Because, um, you know, first of all, good news uh, for the yeah. first time in a very long time, the Congress is actually sitting up and taking notice on this. And anybody who's ever watched a congressional hearing knows that my colleagues, um, there is some technological expertise, but let's just say it's not uh, evenly spread through the Congress. <laughs> and uh, and um, you know, a lot of people are doing a lot of thinking, and we're having hearings and everything else. And so, um, so yes, we're, we're that doesn't mean we're by the way going to pass legislation anytime soon. That's a t- Order for us, um, even in better times than we're in right now. But but people are coming to realize, and and by the way, the, the cryptocurrency industry has some work to do here because people are coming to realize that crypto, some cryptocurrencies can offer. Uh, total anonymity, um, and who needs anonymity out there, right? It's the terrorists, the drug dealers, and yes, the libertarians. I get it. It's not just, it's not necessarily all bad actors. But you know, if you can move a lot of money around the world totally anonymously, that that circumvents our our ability to watch for uh, you know money laundering, for drug proceeds, for terrorist finance, and that scares the bejesus out of my colleagues. And the reason I say the industry has some work to do is because an awful lot of my colleagues kind of scratch their heads and say, "Wait a minute, tell me, tell me again what's good about this thing?" Because I I see a right. potentially anonymous thing. What's the what's the good side of this? Because you know, <laughs> sort of yeah. blinding us to bad behavior is probably not the best selling point. And so I think that what's going to happen is that you're going to see fairly aggressive proposals to you know maybe even prohibit totally anonymous uh, 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 cryptocurrencies like Monero. Uh, you know, Bitcoin's a little more interesting, right? Because it's an open ledger technology. But yeah, that 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 conversation is very much underway, and it has to be international right because i has mean this stuff travels over wires you can say we're not going to do it in the us well you know how are you going to prevent you know folks from setting up cryptocurrencies in switzerland or wherever
5: yeah because my understanding is that there are these know your customer rules that exist in in europe as well as well as in the us and for the most part the government's enforcing them there but then there are still some states that don't have them and these exchanges that operate in states that don't have such laws are often the ones that the, the criminals can go to and sort of launder, launder the, the proceeds. So it is going to take an international effort.
6: Yeah. And, and, and the magic here, of course, like in so many technologies, is to – is to not quash the innovation. I mean, again, I'm, I'm still hungry for somebody to tell me exactly what, like, you know, how is the human race going to be much improved by the existence of cryptocurrency? I've never heard a really good answer to that question. But, you know, it is an innovation and we don't want to quash it. But obviously, we want to regulate it in a way that doesn't turn it into just a vehicle for very bad people to do very bad things.
5: So what about the role of sanctions, do you think, as, as a punishment and as a deterrent? Uh, you know, in this case, Okay, so we saw the United States impose some sanctions on um, on Russia over solar winds. Justin mentioned solar winds earlier. We want to talk to you about that, about whether that was uh, a sort of a wise and appropriate response. But first of all, do you think sanctions can be effective? Have they ever, sh- you know, been shown to be effective in in modifying behavior here? And uh,
6: would you yeah there's a problematic answer to that question because the answer is sort <laughs> of right I mean you can hold up a couple of cases where sanctions probably achieved their their desired goals I mean most recently of course you know really forcing the Iranians to the table to negotiate the nuclear deal and arguably you know back in the in the ancient days when you and I were in school uh, you know I, I, it's probably fair to say that sanctions had a pretty significant impact in ending apartheid in South Africa because it was so but if you think about those two examples the reason they worked there's a lot of reasons they work. But the key reason is that the international community was totally united, right? And so if you have a united international community, which let's face it, you don't often have, they can work. But if you don't, you know, you're you're, going to have lots of cheating and it'll, you know, they're going to be, they're going to, you know, sanctions can be pretty ineffective, right? I mean, the North Koreans, it didn't stop the North Koreans from developing nuclear weaponry and it's not stopping the Russians from bad behavior. And so it's it's sort of a, problematic tool unless you have everybody everybody on board
5: right but the sanctions even with the europeans haven't proven to change russia's behavior whether it's res- with respect to you know using chemical weapons against opponents or or aggression in, in eastern ukraine so what tool do you think would be most effective at actually changing uh russia and Putin's behavior with say you know cyber attacks malign cyber behavior yeah,
6: well, I, 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 I hate, hate to beat the dead horse, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, Putin um, is a man who who sort of understands the language of force and retribution. You know, for him, international convention and negotiation is a tool towards the end of, of – uh, toward, towards his personal ends. And if it helps, that's great. And if it doesn't, he ignores it. So, again, it takes me back to deterrence, right, until yeah. – Until you smack him in the nose hard enough, metaphorically speaking, (laughs) he's going to keep sticking that nose where it shouldn't be. Um, And, uh, you know, sadly, he, you know, okay, I suppose it's uncomfortable that he's under sanction over, you know, taking Crimea and his activities in eastern Ukraine. But they're they're kind of sustainable. And uh, so I think particularly in the cyber realm, you know, the next time the next time we see an attack that was either originated or tolerated, um, you know, we need to. As as they say, down at the bar, kick some butt and take some names, because I think that's the only thing that's going to, at the end of the day, speak to him.
5: Right. Hey, and um, I know you mentioned solar winds. Now, that was really at bottom an intelligence and espionage activity. Right. The the intelligence community came out and said we judge solar winds to have been an act of uh, intelligence gathering of espionage. It wasn't a damaging or destructive attack uh the way that say you know turning out the lights in kiev would be which the russians also did uh and you know intelligence and espionage is something that the united states all countries do basically so was what was so bad about solar winds that it should uh, deserve you know such uh such a, a strong response from the us do you think
6: well y- the I, I mean the answer is kind of obvious right, which is that intent is only part of it. And I th- I think you described intent correctly. It, this was not something that was designed to destroy equipment or or or, or erase software like we've seen right. in other attacks. It was designed to get into software. Um, but but then you've got to you've got to talk about the effect, right? I mean you know there's that old saying we learned as kids: the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? You know as it was, it actually created billions and billions and billions of dollars of damage damage um around the uh, uh around the world. And and of course, you know, the Russian intelligence agencies bear responsibility for that, just as we would. Uh, you know, there's there's often an analogy in the uh in the kinetic realm, right? And if you're if you're going after a terrorist and, and you uh and you kill the terrorist but you also kill fifty civilians, you're you're responsible for that. And that's why we're very careful about how we take out terrorists when we do that. So intent is one thing and and, and you're right, you know, we're never gonna give up our The United States is never going to give up its uh, ability to do espionage, but we're still going to bear responsibility for what happens when when uh, when things go wrong in the service in the service of that espionage. Just as the the Russians. Or in other words, we're never we're never
5: going to get the Russians to stop spying, but we can always call them out when we we see it happen. Right? I
2: mean.
6: Right, right. And, 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 and yeah, name and name and shame. And, and again, we're never going to give up spying in the Chinese. Nobody's going to give up spying, um, but you still bear responsibility. And, you know, we've seen this in other in other situations. Um, you know, it's hard to control uh, software, you know, software that is specifically designed to get into other people's networks. If it gets out into the wild, um, it can wreak havoc. And, well, uh, that's...
5: Yeah. I mean, in fact, and by that measure, SolarWinds was actually more limited and targeted than a much more, I think, disruptive hack, which was the Chinese hack of Microsoft Exchange servers. Do you remember that one Right. Uh, a few months ago? I mean, in that one, while it didn't hit U.S. agencies, it hit hundreds of thousands of targets, companies, state and local governments, think tanks, universities around the country and around the world. And one could argue that was far more damaging, disruptive, expensive, and, sh- and it was directly attributed to the Chinese state. Shouldn't China maybe have been sanctioned for that one?
6: Sure, sure. I mean, again, we. That, <laughs> it's really important that there be accountability in this realm. I mean – you know, an awful lot of the interstate, uh, you know, uh, tensions um, happens away from people's living rooms, right? I mean, when we're when we're doing uncomfortable things with the Chinese Navy in the South China Sea, people people see it on on cable news, Uh, you know, even the well, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is, is, is sort of abstract to people. But, you know, when all of a sudden you can't get to work or the pipeline shuts down or the electricity network is threatened, that's that's very real for people. And that's why. Accountability, and, and by the way, we'll be subject to the same accountability. If we let something out into the wild that shuts down, you know, Nigerian power networks, we'll 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 need to help make uh, we'll we'll need to help clean up our mess.
4: Ellen, this is for you, and then um, feel free to, to, continue to continue. asking this question. Uh, you recently, sorry about that. Somebody jumped on stage. You recently re- have done some reporting about what the Biden administration. Is doing at the international level with our allies and our friends and our brothers and sisters over in Europe. Biden administration is doing to address cyber as an issue, and whether you think those steps are in the right direction and maybe even going far enough.
5: Yeah, I th- I think I, I did that reporting uh, in response to the solar winds activity, which um, we th- we just spoke about, and the. Administration, uh, you know, unveiled its its response to both solar winds as well as uh, the poisoning of Alexei Navalny and um, and some other, you know, malign Russian actions as as sort of a basket of of bad behavior. And in general, Biden administration is. Is really putting a heavy emphasis on working with allies, especially, you know, in Europe, uh, Five Eyes, uh, Canada, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S. and and Japan and and South Korea and India, sort of, you know, trying to create an alliance of of techno democracies, uh, if you will, you know, ag- against uh, what they call techno um, techno authoritarian states or autocracies and trying to create this sort of coalition of the willing of like minded states who can bring to bear uh, you know, pressure on the, the authoritarian or autocracies to to change their their behavior, whether it's in in the area of malign cyber activity or coercive economic activity, which is what China is is engaged in. And we can we can talk about that uh, you know, or 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 other activities. And and so whether it's through sanctions, coordinated statements of, um, you know, of, of calling out bad behavior, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, um, indictments or law enforcement actions. I think there's they're definitely just trying to take this on in a much more uh, international, global fashion than a kind of go it alone approach that the Trump administration Engaged in.
4: Thank you for that. Um, And uh, I guess I'm going to ask one more question, then uh, Mm -hmm. turn it over to um, uh, turn it over to Ellen, and then if she has any more questions, then we can go to the audience. Um, So I guess Congressman, uh, to kind of zoom way back out, away from cyber and back into uh, your business, and I'm sure Ellen actually has a ton of great insight on this as well with her reporting. Um, During the Trump administration, we saw some really important investigations uh, going on in both the Senate and House uh, intelligence uh, communities. Um, In the Senate, you had Senator Mark Warner, who will be on this show in the future, working uh, what was at least appeared in the reporting was in a very close manner with his Republican colleagues, Richard Burr specifically investigating election interference. And then on the House side, you had what was reported to us as a more acrimonious dynamic. I was wondering if whether you can kind of juxtapose what we saw in the House and what we saw in the uh, in the Senate and whether or not the House Intelligence uh, Committee can be as effective as the Senate Committee, considering the dynamics that were publicly reported on.
6: Yeah, that's a that's a great question and a, and a painful question for me because the echoes of the split that took place in the intelligence committee on the House side, which has always been um, the least partisan committee, um, you know, we meet behind closed doors with no cameras, right? We nobody needs to pontificate for the cameras. There uh, is still very painful and still evident, um, and uh, you know, I think Democrats regard Devin Nunes as very much sort of a handmaiden of uh, of, of ex President Trump, and I. I think Republicans sort of regard Adam Schiff, the chairman, uh, with whatever the whatever the symmetrical uh, condemnation is there, and so it's really qu- quite painful because, of course, the committee has an absolutely essential function of providing some oversight to things that happen out there that nobody else gets to see. Ellen, Ellen, of course, spends her days trying to see those things, but you know, pretty much, pretty much, uh, nobody else gets to see them. Um, I don't know why the Senate was able to uh, was able to kind of keep its act together in a way that produced a bipartisan report about the Russian election hack and the house wasn't um, you know the house is a more rowdy place there's a lot more members uh, there's certainly more uh, aggressive let's say aggressive activists in the house on both sides of the aisle I think um, but no it's a it's a huge problem it's a huge and it, and it remains a problem to this day it's it's, it's starting to fade a little bit um, but it uh, but it remains a problem um, and I think it's a credit uh, frankly to Senator Warner and Senator Burr um, and, and you know Senator Rubio who ultimately said signed off on a bipartisan report, which was quite critical of the Trump campaign and Trump administration, um, that they were able to keep, um, you know, they were able to keep the sort of best interests of the country front and center on on their committee activity.
4: Ellen, do you have any takes on the differences we saw?
5: I think it boils down largely to personalities. Uh, You know, in in, uh, uh, Devin Nunes, as Congressman pointed out, you had someone who was much more sort of nakedly partisan and political. Um, and, uh, and and on, on, on the Senate side, the, the personalities were, were less so. And I mean, if you just contrast uh, the chair and vice and ranking on the House side, going back, uh, you know, a decade, even though you had a, a Republican and Democrat, they as largely checked their parties at the door when they went into the committee to do their business. Their party labels, and so, yeah, I think Devin Nunes was was just much more of a political actor, and as a result, I think uh, Chairman Schiff uh, felt compelled to sort of, you know, become more outspoken, and thus also, you know, was painted as a as a a, a very partisan person by uh, by by the supporters of President Trump and the Republicans, and it just became kind of a. Uh, a, a very uh, acrimonious, I think, unfortunately, um,
4: environment. So, it, And just to add some context, I have nothing but respect for the House. I was at L.A. Uh, in the House, and then I did some consulting for CISA at DHS. And for everybody in the audience, you may look at the House and you may say it's always all partisan. But for some context, the Intelligence Committee, I don't want to say never, but it's rarely, partisan. It's normally, you know, getting down to brass tacks, doing the business, putting the country first. And um, we saw a little bit of a breakdown there. But um, Ellen, I did want to, you're the two-time Pulitzer. I want to see if you had any questions for uh, Jim or if we should go to the audience.
5: Well I wanted to just follow up on this this is a great segue into something I know uh, the congressman cares deeply about uh, because generally national security foreign policy intelligence issues are are nonpartisan issues especially after 9/11 you, you saw that um, really play out and and the, but the last sort of 4 years of the Trump administration uh, we had a president who openly kind of disparaged the intelligence agencies or doubted their their assessments of for instance election interference by Russia uh, and who put in place people who were seen as as more you know politically partisan and that then they were sort of intelligence professionals um, with that, you know, it took a toll, I think, on the intelligence community. And, you know, morale was down and a number of people left or took leaves of absence. Congressman, what, what do you think? Has has the change first in administration made a difference? And do you think, you know, how do you ensure that politics plays no role in the profession of intelligence?
6: Yeah, yeah. Critical, critical question. Um, I mean, anybody who watches Donald Trump for 30 seconds, um, very quickly comes to understand that that facts that that are uncomfortable to him, uh, that don't fit his narrative, that don't make him feel powerful, uh, are facts to be denied and ignored. Um, anything which damages his his own sort of mental standing as this strong, uh, <laughs> maybe he wouldn't use the word, but autocratic leader um, is to be dismissed and. You know that was evident from moment one when shortly after his election, um, he went to the CIA and stood in front of you know what is the most sacred, wall at the CIA, where the stars for those CIA officers that we've lost over the generations are put. And he he talked about he talked about his big election win and talked politics. It was sort of clear what this president wanted. And as good as the people are inside the intelligence community. And by the way, they were not all good. Right. What Rick Grinnell did at the ODNI at the uh, offset when he was acting director of national intelligence. If it's not a crime, it should be. Uh, he was a was and always is a partisan hack who, who uh, you know, it's very clear he uh, he um, stopped the flow of intelligence that was inconvenient to the president. But my point is that institutions eventually are you know, they do they do move in the direction that their leaders want them to move. And so we're still in the process, I think, of uh, of being sure um, that the intelligence community gets back to a world where you know analysts aren't afraid to uh, to say things that uh, that might be at odds with the with the president's policy or that might be at odds with their own political leanings because when you start to say that intelligence can be used for political purposes, you know it's the wild west. Who uh, where does it stop? And so we do have a lot of work to do. The current leadership team, I think, you know they don't get better than Bill Burns. Bill Burns is a is he's a saint, right at CIA and uh, Avril Haynes at, the, at DNI. Uh, these are very, very careful uh, people. But And by the way, this isn't just the IC, right? This is the Justice Department. As we sit here and talk, I'm looking at a headline that says that, you know, Attorney General Barr knew that the president's claims of you know, the big lie that he'd actually won the election were completely false. That's not the word in the headline. It's a non-family word. But, um, you know, the Department of Justice was terribly warped by, uh, by Attorney General Barr and others in the service of the president. And that's a terrifying thing. I mean, you need to go to countries, you know, you, you need to go to banana republics, authoritarian, caudillo-run regimes, to <laughs> see um, a world where intelligence agencies and prosecutorial authority is used for the political... Um, advancement of the leader, which is what happened in the last four years.
4: I do have to get your opinion on the reports from the New York Times, because we are talking about uh, gross violations in the name of partisanship of the DOJ requesting records from your colleagues on the committee and the staff members. Uh, How do you feel about that? How should we look at that in the terms of the Constitution and potentially the executive branch maybe sending a message about investigating and oversight to an independent pillar of our democracy, the, the legislative branch.
6: Well, and the media, right? Ellen Nakashima had her. <laughs> <laughs> she, can, she can give you a firsthand account. But um, so so there's a there's a quick and clear answer to this, um, which is that it's yet another example of. Um, of trying to bully institutions that did not line up for Donald Trump, that would not, you know, tell lies for him, that would that would that would push against him. That's the definition, by the way, of the United States Congress, where a check and a balance on the power of the president. Most people who have taken fourth grade civics know that. Um, and of course, the media is exactly the same thing. The work that Ellen does. Um, uh, is is terribly important to keeping the government in in line. And, and so, so here's the way I think about it. You, know, you can say, well, what if terribly important secrets made their way into the press? Wouldn't we need to go after whoever spilled those secrets? Well, yes, yes, we would. And in fact, the press, generally speaking, and Ellen can speak to this, you know if, if a senior government official goes to The Washington Post or The New York Times and says, if you run this story um, people will die or there will be huge damage to our national security. They will often take the decision to postpone its release or whatever. They'll negotiate the, the, the information. But, but unless this is a case, unless this is, you know, my colleagues who apparently had their, their cell phone records and text records, the metadata taken, with a member of Congress, unless you're pretty sure that that member of Congress has $100 million in his trunk that he got from the Russians for turning over our nuclear codes, and I'm obviously giving you a cartoonish example here, don't do it. Don't do it because there's just way too much scope unless it is plainly criminal, uh, hands off, both the media and the Congress, because those are critical institutions to keeping our country from becoming the kind of autocracy that Donald Trump would have liked to it to have become. And I'm, I know I'm picking on Donald Trump. It's not just Donald Trump. These, are, these have been critical institutions for 240 years of our history to prevent us from drifting into, into totalitarianism. And
4: Ellen, to you, uh, I know that the Obama administration also was guilty of going after journalist records. Uh, But could you give us your take uh, on the question with the congressman? Because you, again, are the fourth estate here. Another, if not uh, uh, finalized in our constitution, Uh, you are through free speech. If not a fourth branch of government, you're vitally important. What did you feel and how do you view it uh, through the lens of the constitution when your records are
5: Right. Well, it it is tremendously disturbing. It uh, feels like a violation. I'll have to say this is not the first time my records were uh, were sought back in the Bush administration. In fact, George W. Bush, uh, when I was overseas in in Jakarta, uh, it turned out there was a leak investigation to a story I had written. um, And unbeknownst to me, uh, the the Justice Department had obtained my phone records, metadata, not the actual f- content of the phone calls, but the who called who for how long information, the called met- metadata. Uh, and we, I, we, we were only informed of that several years later when the Justice Department Inspector General was doing an investigation of the FBI's use of exigence letters, which are not even subpoenas. They're basically just you know, d- demand to a phone company that we are doing an investigation uh, in you know, and we, we want these phone records. This is a leak investigation, and we want these records, and they turn them over. So that was the first shot across the bat. That was a shock. And we got an apology from the then uh, general counsel of the FBI to our executive editor. And then subsequently, when the Obama administration took office, they launched more leak investigations than all prior administrations combined. Right. So it's not just, you know, the Republicans or Democrats, it's it's both parties. But I think what the Congressman point out is these investigations that started in the the Trump administration seem to have much more, you know, more of a political tinge to them, um, where some of these were questionable cases, maybe of, of trying to find out um, you know who, who leaked to 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 a newspaper in one st- a case. I think it was the New York Times story. It looked like maybe they were trying to see if uh, if Jim Comey, you know, the FBI director, had had talked to the New York Times. I mean, that is a far cry from say you know an investigation into uh, you know a national security leak involving a terrorist case or uh, or North Korean nukes. But it's never, I I think, as a policy. What, what I'm hearing out of the current attorney general, that they are not going to seek journalist records now, this is going to be their policy, they will no longer go after journalist records, is, is the right one, is a good one. Because, in fact, the, the press, the media are a crucial pillar of democracy. It, it's you know We are the, the journalists who try to help keep the American public informed as best we can about what's going on, in the institutions of power, whether it's it's the executive branch, Congress, the courts, the intelligence community, or or in in private sector, and to hold people to account, right to to unveil abuses and hold people account to account, and it is not a perfect, uh, we're not perfect at it, but it is, I think, a crucial service to to the public and a healthy functioning democracy, and it would it's so chilling to to sources when. They are thinking, you know, feeling that if they're trying to help the, the press understand what's going on, they could be, you know, uh, the subject of a leak investigation or a prosecution. And that is, is just, you know, not conducive to a functioning democracy.
4: On that note, let's go to the audience. We've got uh, about 30 minutes left here. Uh, And Ellen will stay as long as she can. She's on deadline. We want to go to Katie, who is a cybersecurity expert that's testified in front of Congress. And then Mr. Emerson for our first few questions. Katie, over to you.
2: Oh, hi. Well, thank you so much. And hi, Ellen. It's nice to hear your voice. It's been so long. (laughs) Um, So I guess questions for uh, questions for both Ellen and the congressman. Um, You know, in terms of I, I know the congressman spoke of it's more complicated than that about about uh, deterrence in in retaliation for you know cyber espionage, cyber attacks, or appropriate you know retaliation, proportionate retaliation. But and I know you can't you know speak out outside of um, the constructs of the uh, of the intelligence committee on specifics. But one of the things that I really worry about as a cybersecurity practitioner of over the last twenty plus years is that we currently are not in a position to foresee catching up in terms of our ability to protect ourselves. So while, you know, I understand that that it is known that we are more vulnerable than a lot of our adversaries uh, because of our reliance on the internet that we originally built, um, you know, where is it that that both of you, you know, putting this out there for both of you, where is it that you see... Um, you know, us sort of coming to terms with the fact that we are sitting on top of an indefensible cybersecurity infrastructure in the United States, and you know, at some point, the deterrence that we attempt, we're we're going to run out of runway. Is I guess where, where I'm bringing this to. So um, either one of you wanting to take that question, I would love to hear.
6: Go go ahead, Ellen. Uh, I'll 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 follow you.
2: <laughs> well. I
5: I think that, you know, it's it's amazing how far in a way uh, the the country has has come in the last 10 years where cybersecurity was obscure, you know, on mainstream at a mainstream level 10 years ago. And it certainly wasn't something that CEOs and C-suite were were thinking about cyber insurance really was Barely there, uh, and today there's just so much more awareness for better and for worse, right? Of the threats out there, of the of the need to. As, as uh, the congressman said, just do basic cyber hygiene, right? To to keep patching, doing your updates. People are more cyber literate. I remember when I first started writing about these stories, I could not use. I was banned from using the word cyber in the in the lead in the first paragraph until my, you know editors would say you have to explain what cyber means. Right? And and today, you know, of course, cyber is actually a very uh, ambiguous word. But today, it's it's on everyone's tongues, and there's more sophistication about the. Difference in types of attacks, as you know, there's espionage, there's destructive, there's damaging, there's there's uh, influence or or, or um, you know cyber influence operations that are carried out through the internet. There are different sorts of 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 means or ends that uh, bad people, bad actors, try to achieve through cyber. So it's not just one a one one type of threat that we are trying to protect against, and for and because of that, we have to raise our defensive game across so many different levels and within, you know, not just the the um, general private sector, but the critical sectors. And, you know, there's 16 of them and each of them have varying degrees of expertise and sophistication as to where their defenses are, uh, whereas Congress is, is also starting to even think about maybe, you know, regulation. I know the Homeland or the TSA at the Department of Homeland Security is working on regulation now pipelines, which is something they were would never have done even two years ago. Um, regulation is like a bad word, but I think it's it's time to start thinking about that. And there is enough experience in certain sectors, like the bulk power electric sector, in how to go about doing regulation that it can be done perhaps in a way that's not counterproductive, that doesn't. Uh, you know, damage or depress innovation that allows for companies to, to continue to evolve and use the, the newest and best uh, tools. There's a very healthy, vibrant cyber defense and cyber threat uh, industry. And the one of the big policy issues is the degree to which U.S. Uh, intelligence agencies and, and military agencies should be involved in defending the private sector, especially the critical infrastruct- uh, infrastructure sectors against foreign cyber threats. Um, you know, because we have such uh, uh, a long and uh, healthy I guess, uh, tradition of wanting to uh, ensure separation between the in- uh, intelligence agencies, and the military and the domestic sectors, uh, we don't want to have... You know the U.S. government spying on on uh, private private companies and whatnot. Uh, there is you know there are challenges to just say allowing NSA to to sit on people's networks. Um, if you did that, it would probably make you know maybe uh, cyber defense easier, but it would make a lot of people very nervous about uh, privacy and civil liberties. So I think that's one of the uh, areas that is a challenge, but you you keep hearing people raise that issue about how the US government, the federal government, needs to be able to see what's going on inside the private sector a lot more than it can do so now. And that's because so much of the attack surface, more than 80, 85% of, of the critical infrastructure is in the hands of private companies. So I'll stop there.
6: Yeah, and all I would add, I think that was a very good comprehensive answer. I would just add maybe something about how we how we think about this challenge. Um, first of all, it's not a problem to be solved, right? I mean, these are, by definition, these are human-engineered things, and if a human can engineer something, they can they can ultimately get into it. Um, and so it's a, it's really a problem to be managed, and we can manage it. The, the good news is we can manage it a lot better than we do. Uh, Ellen's right. Fifty, you know, t- actually, when I started in politics twelve years ago, Congress didn't know a darn thing about any of this stuff, and now people are very, very focused. The private sector is very focused, and we can manage it much better. We we can we can do all the things that we've talked about with respect to cyber hygiene. You know, uh, uh, we can engineer networks that are designed to be a good a lot more robust than they are. And then finally, you know, you can take some comfort in the notion that, you know, we've We've managed analogous problems before, right? Um, you know, today if you look at the cockpit of a plane, um, you know, the, our planes today are fly-by-wire, right? It's all er, everything is electronic in the cockpit. It's not like the uh, like the old days, fifty years ago, when everything was pneumatic and you moved a lot of things around and pulled levers. Um, but um, you know, planes use re- redundancy. There's a lot of redundancy, and in fact, if you know the electronics fail, you can always fail back onto, in many cases, um, mechanical systems. So, so that's the nature of the engineering that needs to be happen in networks and of course you know our networks are you know they're, they're, they they change every single day as people install new new, new hardware new software so um, you, you, you need to at least take some comfort in the notion that as we come to better understand the threat we can better engineer networks that are not ever going to be completely um, completely protected but which will be a lot less vulnerable than they are today
4: first we'll go to Dimitri who was the C- CTO and co-founder of a company called CrowdStrike. Dimitri, do you have a question for the Congress?
3: Sure. And Alan, good to see you here. Uh, Congressman, uh, two-part question. One is, what do you see as a prospect for passing some critical legislation this year, like mandatory breach reporting, given the disclosures we have seen on SolarWinds and other issues, and companies have just not been forthcoming on disclosing that they've been victimized and Unless they can show that personal identifiable information was stolen, there's not really um, domestic uh, regulation at the state level that would force them to disclose. So, so that's number one. And then number two is organizational question. Uh, Congress passed last year in the NDA uh, this new, new, new position, national cyber director located in the White House, although not on the National Security Council, sort of as a one throat to choke, as some of your colleagues have described it. But um, at the same time, we already have a lot of people that are in charge of cybersecurity in the government. We obviously now have Anne Neuberger, who is Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber, that's running things at the White House already. We have the CISA director. We have the director and, and of NSA and Cyber Command, Command and director of FBI, all of whom have a variety of different roles in cyber. So are we just creating more bureaucracy and adding people to to uh, to this uh, issue versus uh, creating a one-throat-to-choke type of accountability. Thank you.
6: Yeah, yeah, great, great, great questions, and I'm I'm sort of uh, 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 humble about answering them for somebody who, uh, who 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 is critical at a place like CrowdStrike. Um, but uh, let me let me take a whack at it. Um, uh, number one, are we going to? Your question was, are we going to pass legislation? Um, I, the answer to that is yes. I can't I can't tell you whether it'll be this year. There's an awful lot on the plate uh, this year with infrastructure and uh, um, budget and debt ceiling and you name it. Um, so I don't know that it'll be this year. But I, I, I will tell you that the weather has changed pretty dramatically on this. I went through the um, uh, the CISA Act that was I think it was 2015 and it just took forever and it was negotiated and negotiated and the CISA Act. Uh, the the uh, I believe it was Computer Information Security Act. It set up this mechanism for the private sector to go to the Department of Homeland Security, and they were they were given some protections uh, in in case they inadvertently passed on personally identifiable information. That was a that was quite a slog, um, and so these issues are are challenging. But you know, I, I I do think that the weather changed on things like mandatory reporting. I wasn't the only one in the Congress. Who said you've got to be kidding me. We don't even know. Uh, you you know the nature of this attack. We haven't seen the malware, and by the way, we don't know uh, whether a ransom was uh, was was paid. I mean, many of us read about this in the in the in the press. And so, yes, I think there is a uh, there is a new urgency. uh, And I would imagine that sometime in the next uh, in the next year or so, we will probably pass legislation um, expanding on the size of uh, the act of 20. I believe it was 2015. Um, You know, then you get into much more complicated areas, privacy, right, which is adjacent to what we're talking about here. That's that's going to be a a bigger slog because there's just, you know, people very adamant on both sides of that issue Um, with respect to the management and the interior, the interior. Management, um, I, 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 candidly don't know the answer to that question. I've observed that in the federal government, when you have cross-cutting, cross-cutting issues, a lot depends on. The people that are in the organizational roles, as opposed to precisely where those roles are—are are they in the NSC? Are they in the White House? Are they at DHS? Or um, I, I, I think back to when uh, pre-Trump, you had you know a, 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 a DNI and a CIA director who had worked with each other forever, and consequently, what could otherwise be sort of a little bit of a, a source of some tension worked really well. So I think I think the magic lies in the in the people. One comment I would make. And again, I'm on a little bit thin ice here because I haven't actually gone in and sort of done a deep dive in probably two or three years. But one one thing that the federal government needs to get better is making sure that good cybersecurity practices and updated hardware and updated software – permeate throughout the departments and the agencies. When I last sort of did a deep dive on this two or three years ago, you know, the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Treasury, they all had their, you know, the secretaries were captain of the ship and their authority was, uh, you know, unbreachable. And they all had a chief technology officer whose authority was unbreachable. And there struck me as very, very little communication between Treasury and, and agriculture and other and OPM, for example, which is a little crazy, right, because it turns out that these departments and agencies. Actually, in some cases, share hardware. And so it does strike me that somebody who has a DNI like perspective, director of national intelligence, who can look across 17 agencies in the case of the DNI and say, hey, you know, what we learned over here at NSA really needs to get, you know, shared over here at, uh, you know, the Treasury uh, intelligence operations. So, um, that that's a that's a long-winded way of saying I'm not really sure if the answer is right, but I do know that we still in this area of cybersecurity and and generally speaking, IT need to do much a much better job uh, 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 sharing best practices across the agencies and the departments of the federal government.
4: I want to go to my friend here, uh, John Soss, who was a Chas, sorry, who was an intern for Ted Cruz actually on the Hill. Do you have a question? And then after John, we will go to Neely for maybe a more business businessing.
7: Oh, Justin, if you were looking for someone that wasn't going to do the business angle, you went to the wrong person here. Um, but, uh, c- Congressman, thank you for the time. Uh, I, a lot of interesting stuff happening this week, what with the kind of closing of the EU Foreign Policy Summit. Um, we got the the, the Putin Xi meeting this week. Um, but the thing that's actually drawn my attention is the Eagle Act kind of going through the House uh, at the moment. Um, that includes the, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Um, that would, for those that are for the audience's sake, it would kind of require companies to prove out the supply chain didn't include forced labor. And my question to you is kind of uh, twofold. The first is, um, well, I'd love to get your thoughts as to whether or not this is going to clear the House, since I think the Senate version has already gone through. Um, But more importantly, you know, how difficult is it being on the intelligence community to effectively communicate with sort of your Uh, compatriots both in Europe and uh, elsewhere abroad to ensure that a lot of these sanctions and rules that are being implemented by the U.S. actually have the kind of teeth that's necessary. Can you kind of walk us through your engagement with them on the uh, sort of across the pond?
6: Yeah, great, great, great question, great question, and um, uh, you know, in terms of the sort of congressional efforts around uh, really calling out, and naming, and shaming the Chinese with respect to their atrocious activities with the Uyghurs, um, I, I do imagine we're going to continue to make progress there. Um, there's not a lot of dissent uh, inside the Congress about the need to really highlight the awful things that are happening um, that the Chinese are engineering in 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 um, uh, in that region, um, and so yes, I you know I I, I haven't. Actually Actually reviewed the specific language so there, there may be things that are problematic internationally it's much more interesting and we sort of saw this at the um, at the g7 and 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 within the uh, EU foreign policy uh, conference which is that um, it's it's a bit uh, there's a parallel to be drawn with Russia right everybody's angry at Russia but oh by the way they're building several important uh, 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 natural gas pipelines you know there's an analogy with that with the Chinese you know and and, and actually it's, it's important because as I said earlier in this uh, in this presentation we, we need to resist the temptation of thinking of the Chinese has nothing but enemies, right? I mean, they own trillions of dollars of United States Treasury debt. They are critical to all of our supply lines, and you see that, of course, in the international response. And you saw this at the G7, where some countries wanted to take a much more aggressive approach with China. And you know, China will exact retribution from those uh, countries that, uh, particularly those countries that aren't as powerful as the United States, that that called the Chinese out on on their bad behavior, whether it's uh, whether it's in uh, uh, with the Uyghurs or or you know domestically with the press, etc. Um, and so, yeah, there there is. It's always going to be a, I think a robust conversation uh, in which it's frankly going to be easier for us it's going to be easier for us as the United States where a global superpower uh, you know though our supply chains are intimately linked you know we are not as vulnerable to Chinese coercion as let's say the Malaysians are and so you know it's gonna be easier for us to say hey everybody should do this but you know I remember Madeleine Albright at one point where she was talking about uh, how we had to think about the Chinese she said it's the very different defini- very definition of statecraft right we we've, 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 we've we've. We've got to remember our values. We've got to be intelligently coercive where where we have to be. And we have to work really hard to build these international coalitions, because, you know, obviously, if the Chinese see the world as divided and something like the way they treat the Uyghurs, they'll 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 see that as a as a as as reason enough to keep doing it.
4: Thank you for that. I I think Christine uh, is actually involved in cross-border investment. She's a Taiwanese-American. Christine, did you have a question that might be related?
5: Yeah, Congressman Hines, thank you. So my follow-up to that would be, how do you balance um, it? There's a go to facilitate private sector investments from China, students, tourism, things that are
2: adding to our economy here. And, um, you know, I follow Uh, you know, U.S.-China kind of triangle on a government level very closely. But there is concern with being able to differentiate as a country with this kind of increased
5: um, anti-China sentiment that I feel between the actions of the CCP government
2: and being able to continue having our states benefit economically from the trade. So I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on how you're balancing that.
6: Yeah, yeah, another really good and difficult question to which there's no quick answer. But I'm going to try to I'm going to try to try to be quick so we can get more more uh, more questions in. Uh, the magic, I think, resides in hopefully working with the Chinese and maybe even persuading the Chinese to be much more clear about where the CCP, where the Chinese government starts and ends and where the private sector and academia starts and ends. And I know that that's a huge issue because they don't necessarily think about it that way. But if academic exchanges are at some point driven primarily by the, you know, foreign ministry or the Ministry of Interior Security. And we have reason to believe that academic exchanges are, in fact, sort of, you know, about either, you know, proselytizing to, to uh, you know, Chinese abroad or, or, or trying to come by IP at uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It's going to be a much, much harder problem. And of course, that goes for just about uh, everything. It goes for Huawei. You know, wouldn't it be neat to, to have much more clarity into the relationship? between the CCP, the Chinese government, and Huawei. We'd make at least a huge problem much smaller. Uh, And um, so the best I can do, because this is, again, it's not a problem that's going to be solved, is to suggest that you know, verifiably speaking, the Chinese, it would really help if they would be much more clear because we do whole of government response, right? They do whole of society response. And so it's hard for us to know when we're talking about the exchange of students or the exchange of academics or investments in our, you know, venture capital like investments in our in our high technology firms, whether we're dealing with the interests of the Chinese state or the interest of, a, of, of an investment or a university, et cetera.
4: Thank you for those questions and quick answers. Uh, we're going to go to Neely and then Emerson. Neely, over to you. Great. Thank you, Justin. And thank you,
1: Congressman. Um, Himes, I, the question I have for you is we've got economy and jobs. We've got education. And often I think we kind of approach them in two separate silos.
4: But the reality is we are only as good as our labor force. And we're seeing a lot of that kind of come to um Like wallpaper ripped off um, a wall. We're seeing a lot of those cracks right now in our economy. How do you think we can more effectively align the interests of where we need to be in education with the interests of corporations?
6: Wow, great, great question. Uh, okay, I have to do it disservice by trying to be relatively quick about it, but but you put your finger on it. I, I, I wouldn't use the word corporations. Corporations are just one legal entity that employ humans, right? Small businesses do, academia does, blah, blah, blah. So the the, uh, the way I'd rephrase your question is to say, how can we finally innovate enough into our educational sector, which has been famously resistant to innovation, so that it is producing People who can take the jobs of today and tomorrow quickly and in real time, because that's not what we have today, right? We're still stuck in the world. I, you, I certainly have a piece of paper that I got, whatever it was, thirty years ago. You know, that said I graduated from a college, and you know, I've done a little bit of sort of continuing education along the way. But the idea that you get a piece of paper and boom, you're done, is nuts in the modern world. So, what does that mean? In the in an effort to be uh, to 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 be brief here, um, we we really need to rethink. Um, education into something more akin to lifelong learning, you know, because it's not just the guys who used to work down at the plant on the industrial lathes anymore, whose skills need updating constantly, right? It's everybody, it's accounting, it's software developers, it's more white collar. So we really need to migrate into a world where education is truly a lifelong endeavor. And that opens up some pretty interesting possibilities, right? We all just went through a year where we saw, you know, our kids, students, you know, learning, doing distance learning, right? And we learned some things that work and some things that didn't work. But my my, my point is that we really need innovation in the sector. Four years. Why is, what's magic about four years? Absolutely nothing, right? There's plenty of people who can be really well-trained and can be great, civically-minded American citizens, maybe with two years, maybe with three years, maybe with seven years. And so I I wish we had another hour to devote to this, but until we really rethink and innovate and disrupt, yes, disrupt um, our system of education, we're going to be right where we are today, where we have a lot of jobs uh, that are going begging and we have a a lot of people who don't have the, you know, have the skills to take those jobs.
4: I wish uh, that during the hearings, more members of Congress like Congressman Jim here uh, got the, the headlines because uh, <laughs> he's pretty damn good at answering these complex questions very quickly. Uh, we will go on that note to Emerson over to you, sir. Hi there. Um, hi, Katie. Long time no here. Um, a quick question for uh, the congressman. Um, There's obviously a conflict between having the defensive mission and the offensive mission inside both inside the National Security Agency. Has there been any thought given to splitting those missions out Um, because it is being painfully clear over the last um, years that the offensive mission consistently wins in those internal debates Uh, over to you?
6: Yeah yeah um so I would tell you that um I would tell you that the division is now fairly bright lined um you know the NSA is not generally speaking an offensive agency charged with operations that is cyber commands realm now the interesting thing of course is that they live in the same building um and what makes it a bit challenging of course is that you know the skills involved in exploiting extremely well protected networks these are these are not things you buy down at the local 7-eleven there are a very limited number of people who actually have that deep expertise so yes there does tend to be and this may be why it's good to have them in the same building there does tend to be a lot of people. Sitting next to each other in front of screens when this sort of thing happens, but but more and more there is a uh, there is a an increasingly bright line between uh, those two operations. Um, and then you then I think you're referring to a conflict that is just plain hard, and we're never going to solve it. We're never going to come up with an algorithm that solves it. And that is that is when we find a vulnerability in some piece of software. What do we do? Do we let the world know about it so it's a safer world, or do we keep it secret so that we can actually employ that or, or take advantage of that exploit against whoever it is we want to take. That um, is a really hard problem without a clear answer. Um, there was, there have been cases, of course, in the last uh, couple of years where the NSA has very, very publicly uh, gone out there and said, we found this vulnerability, but uh, that will not necessarily be the decision in each case. And that's just, again, I'm, I'm not sure there's any organizational structure or anything else that solves that problem for us because it's uh, it's always going to be profoundly competing uh, uh, demands on what happens when we find a, when we find a vulnerability in some piece of software.
4: So we're going to go to Rebecca and then uh, his constituent Erica for the last two questions here. Rebecca, over to you.
2: Thank you, Justin. Um, thank you, Congressman. It's so great to have you here. I, I wonder what your thoughts are on how we protect voting rights. It feels to me that there this is a crisis facing our country, and that voting rights are under attack. And I I wonder what you believe is the right course of action to return this issue to bipartisanship
6: yeah great great question Rebecca I mean look the 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 the, the Republican Party has realized uh, they looked at what happened in Georgia where we elected a black man and a Jewish man senator uh, and both Democrats and they they, they drew the, the fairly clear conclusion that when you have very very substantial uh, numbers of people voting uh, they don't tend to do well and uh, now you know some 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 Republican will offer the rebuttal to that in a future thing but that so what do they do they they manufacture this notion because there's just not a Shred of evidence that there is lots of potential or real voter fraud out there, and therefore we're going to do all these crazy things like trim back on the you know various mechanisms that were opened up to make it easier for people to vote in COVID. Then they do some outrageous things like taking away sort of authority from uh, you know nonpartisan secretaries of state or nonpartisan entities and handing them to legislature. I mean, it, look, we 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 all know what's happening here. But your question was, what do we do about it? Uh, number one, we have to fight it legislatively everywhere that it happens, and we're not always going to win because uh, there's lots of states where uh, Democrats don't really have a say. Uh, number two, the Department of Justice needs to do what it announced yesterday, which is that they're going to go after Georgia. They're going to sue. They're going to try to show that Georgia is deliberately trying to disenfranchise voters of color here. Uh, we are going to rely on the courts a lot. The courts, actually, in the last 10 years or so, the courts have done a lot of work turning back um, state laws that are pretty clearly designed to disenfranchise Americans. But that's not going to be... That's not gonna be Uh, adequate to the incredible campaign of disenfranchisement that the Republicans are running around the country. Um, You know, we're going to need to we're going to need to ultimately when Democrats have more of a say in some of these state legislatures, reverse legislation. And then finally, and this is, this is, this touches close to home for me, you know, we have a say too. And by we, I mean, people who believe that Americans should vote. And I don't just mean Democrats. Um, We need to make sure that in November, we go into these communities and say, there is huge money and huge effort being expended to keep you from voting. Let's show them wrong and do the traditional field work and, and, and voter ID and voter Pushes um, that will cause people. And I think. I think they will look. You know, African Americans are very conscious of the fact that they're that 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 for generations now they've been subject to all sorts of methods, you know, all sorts of things to try to deny them the vote. And that can be motivating. Right. That can really be motivating. And so we've got a lot of organizing to do on top of all the other things that I talked about. But it's it's really essential. I mean, it's just it's just terrible to imagine that a political party would say it's better. It's better in this country if fewer people vote. And they, they may not say it that way, but that's that's what the Republican Party is doing today.
4: Erica. You're in Connecticut. You're probably not too far from the congressman right now. Uh, I love that you're a constituent and you get to ask the member of Congress a question. Uh, Please bring us home
3: here.
1: Oh, thank you, Justin, and thanks for being here, Jim. Um, I really appreciate it more than anyone here because I I, I understand and thank you for doing the Juneteenth, but in Bridgeport and in Easton. I have a background. I interned in in Hartford and was involved in local and state politics. And even back when Dick, I'm sorry, Senator Blumenthal made the transition from AG to Senate, and I read the piece in the post on January 6th uh, with you and uh, Delora and uh, Dick. And I guess the reason I voted for you in in large part, not only are you intelligent and everything you stand for, but your Peruvian background. Um, I'm also an immigrant. So, which brings me to Bella, your beautiful dog, which is also my niece's name. And those (laughs) who are immigrants (laughs) know that. So I'm going to ask you, um, probably a little more personal connection and you can take. But how did that being an immigrant influence your every your involvement in politics, what you do, even cybersecurity? How did that inform that? And what should we take away as other immigrants are in the audience, as other immigrants and constituents in such a diverse state as Connecticut What would you like to say to that or what can you speak to?
6: Yeah. Gosh, what a, what a, what a, what an interesting question. Thank you. Thank you, Erica. And, uh, um, what I, I'm so delighted to be able to finish with a with a question from a constituent, um, and and such a good one as well. Um, so um, I should probably clarify: I'm not actually an immigrant. I was I spent the first ten years of my life in South America. I was born in Peru. My my father's North American, and and uh, he, he was working down there when I was born. Um, so I, I can't claim to have had the full kind of immigrant experience. But I but I, I can tell you this: um, you know, I was in South America in Peru and Colombia until uh, my parents split up, and my mom brought us back to the United States when I was ten, and um, a couple of neat things about that. One, and boy, that's, a, that's 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 the way to learn a language. I will tell you that, uh, <laughs> having tried to learn a language in high school as well. You know, it was a wonderful way to learn a language as a as a as a baby essentially. But the 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 real answer that I that I want to sort of close with uh, today is, um, you know, when I was a kid um, in Peru and Colombia, uh, uh, there were military dictatorships uh, in those countries. Um, Peru, in particular, um, there were coups. There were soldiers and tanks and machine guns on street corners and when I came to the United States and at age 10ish um, none of that none of that was there um, it was I really felt freedom right um, I could play in the street in the in the you know in the town that I lived in I couldn't do that in Bogota Colombia right there was all sorts of fear of violence and kidnapping and so I'm, I'm profoundly grateful um, for for uh, what this country offers people and that that I think is at the core of a lot of immigrants and again I, I didn't have a typical immigrant experience but but I think that's really at the core of the way a lot of immigrants feel about this and it's important to say that because we're having this big argument that I think is largely sort of fostered by the right wing today another one of these ways to you know take attention away from the fact that when the right wing is in power what they do is they they, they cut taxes for very wealthy people that that was the sort of major policy achievement of the Trump years um, but uh, you know we're having this whole sort of discussion about um, uh, you know, about critical race theory and this and that. And, and to me, it just feels like such a silly argument because just as as human beings, we should be proud of what we do well. We should also be very honest when we make a mistake and apologize. I think there's a metaphor there, right? I, to the core of my being, I feel enormously grateful to this country, and I'm beyond proud of the progress that we have made And we have made very real progress because of people like my friend John Lewis. Don't ever tell me that John Lewis didn't drive incredible progress um, in race in this country and Martin Luther King and others. And, and all caps, A-N-D, we have a long way to go. Uh, And we should be able to acknowledge that we have in the past um, gotten it wrong from time to time. You know, for every winning of the Cold War and the freeing of an awful lot of you know the globe from Soviet oppression, there is a Korematsu, where the United States decided to take American citizens of Japanese descent and jail them, profoundly contrary to our Constitution. There is Jim Crow. You know, we'd be so much better country if we thought of our country the way we think. I hope the way we think of ourselves, which is let's be enormously proud of our achievements and of what we strive to do. Even as we recognize that there are things in our history that are appalling that we should be we should struggle with, if for no other reason than history does tend to repeat itself, and we should be conscious of that, um, and um, and apologize for those things that, that you know we should we should all feel badly about what was done to Japanese American ci- uh, citizens in World War II. We should all feel badly about the generations of of you know murderous racial prejudice that we still see echoes of today. So I just wish we could have that conversation rather than this silly conversation of, you know, are we a country we should be proud of or are we a country that is, you know, irredeemably rooted in racism? Both both of those points of view are just completely inconsistent with the reality of this country. And it cheapens us as citizens to to, to, to not acknowledge the full, um, you know, the full, what's the right word, comprehensiveness of, of, of this country's history, which again, to come back to your wonderful question since I was sort of naively brought to this country at age 10, I, I, just, had to, I just had a little bit of a perspective on that, that, that maybe you don't if you, uh, if you grow up, maybe taking it a slightly more, taking it for, for granted.
0: It appears that is all we have for you today. If you liked or disliked what you heard, if you want to find out where to join us live to listen, or maybe ask one of our upcoming guests a question, Or if you have any feedback for us, good or bad, please visit our website, pm101.club or pm101.live. They both work and will get you to the same place where you can find all that and more. This has been Politics and Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of our co-founder, Justin Higgins and I and our team, thank you very much for being here. We hope to see you and hear from you soon.